Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, and Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They've been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up and accept it, or move to another planet. Because in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good for business. History tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means of oppression and tyranny than by any other means. So remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Aconis, A Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. So life as a private security contractor in a hostile or war-torn zone. It is a mixed bag of blessings, some good and some not so good. All in all, however, private security contracting is much the same as life, if not the same, because it is what you make it. So specifically in the Middle East, or the Middle East region, North Africa, MENA, from Saudi Arabia to Turkey, Libya to Greece, Israel to Pakistan, the lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the ancient ones, myths, legends, folklore, maybe. And where it all began, who knows for sure. But if you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know it all centers around what we refer to as the MENA region. North Africa. That's right, the Mediterranean. So, what is it to be a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, particularly one that's outside your country, you know, where you don't really have any stake in the game? There's no skin, so to speak. It's not your country. It's, you know, it's not where you're from. Uh, so it's a little different. It normally becomes personal or takes on a whole different meaning when you're involved directly, sometimes indirectly, but usually directly with what's going on in that country. That's when those sorts of things take on a whole different meaning. Uh, but you know, folks, and I'm not sure if I'm, I have a feeling from what I've heard in in discussions that a lot of folks probably don't realize that private security contractors come from all walks of life generally speaking uh, many to most have a military background or history 
And there's good, really good reasons for that. Um, or at least a solid uh, law enforcement. Uh, sometimes private security in their own country, depending on the instruction level of instruction and training they've received and perhaps some of their experiences. Um, but they come from all walks of life. But more than that, nearly every country around the world has private security contractors. Not all of them deploy outside their country, uh, but just so that there's no mistaking, private security contractors is not peculiar just to North America, the United States. Okay, uh, Europe uh, has plenty of them, and not just Western Europe. Uh, Africa has plenty of them. South America has, and Central America. I mean, even Canada. So... Private security contractors come from pretty much everywhere. Um, and there, and as I've said before, contracting or private contracting, with especially with government agencies, comprises pretty much every profession and industry that you can think of. Uh, and the larger the contract, the more of that is the case. In uh, private security i mean there there are contracts where private security comprises a greater percentage but generally on whole uh if you look at the average across the board private security um or the security elements only comprise roughly 10 percent of the entire force that's out there uh and again depending on the contract where the contract is located the tempo and the climate, uh, the quote-unquote climate, I don't mean the weather climate, uh, the political and, you know, uh, uh, social climate. <laughs> uh, those dictate an awful lot of, of what, the secure, what the requirements are for private security contractors in terms of uh, training, instruction, whether they have a, need a military background or not, and if so, what kind of a military background and how many years. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that goes into determining what those requirements are. And yeah, there are probably always contracts out there in the past, currently, and in the future where people will get through the cracks, so to speak, or come up with their own verbiage. But people get on these projects or contracts that probably shouldn't have uh, been there. Sometimes they work it out, they see their way through it, and they're off and running. Other times, and more often, they get weeded out. But in terms of the instruction and training, I mean, what's involved? Well, a lot of it just depends on the contract that you're on. The government agency that's behind it, that's sponsoring it. Again, the country you're in. What's the political and social climate at the time? Uh, so... The level of instruction and training, again, it, it really, uh, and sometimes the company has something to say about it because they might want more than what the client is requiring. But almost always, if not always, the instruction and training, certifications, recommendations, referrals, anything that goes into it is almost always dictated by the client, if not always, uh, at least to some extent. Uh, realistic or otherwise is really immaterial. That's what it takes to get on there. So, for example, um, your starter contract, starter type contracts, what we call starter contracts. And those are contracts 
for men and women uh, that want to get into private security contracting, regardless of whether they have a military or law enforcement background or history, uh, because if you've not had fairly recent uh, direct exposure and experience to what's going on in there, um, they want, let's face it, they want to test you. They want to get hands on. They want to see you. They want to hear you. They want to see you out there and see if you can if you can do this job um, without causing problems, uh, without hurting anyone, without hurting yourself, uh, and a lot of other things. So, but in terms of instruction and training, again, it varies and it go from from company to company. So, for example, uh, some of the companies I work for, like CSA, which, as I've said before, was part of ACOM. Yeah, they had uh, instruction and training. Um, and it was a fairly complete uh, instruction training program. Uh, most of it had it had less to do with the weapons and more to do with, at that time, force protection, which is actually um, a very broad subject and it encompasses a lot of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so we did have uh, instruction and training. Uh, it was all done in country. Um, and by that, I mean, they looked at your resume, your bio, they took any certifications you might have, any recommendations or referrals, and they put it all together, and they either said, yep, you're good, you get to come in and work for us. And then you got to prove yourself. Um, again, it depended on the time of year and, and, and what year and where we were in things. But typically within one to three weeks, you did your PT test and your firearms qualifications tests. And again, uh, what, what, what you had to do was contingent upon the contract. And the contract, again, those requirements were dictated by the, the, the government entity that sourced that contract. And at that time, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, it was the DOD, so Department of Defense, but it was primarily the Army that we were serving over there. Um, so, you know, 9mm, the M16, the M4, the, uh, the... At that time, we were using also the M60, the 240, the 249. So we had to qualify courses of fire with all those weapons in addition to the PT test. And the PT test included push-ups and pull-ups and mile-and-a-half run timed and sit-ups and, and other stuff. Um, so, you know, though that's in a nutshell kind of what, what, what theirs was. What it is now, who knows? Um... Uh, you know, and then you got companies like SOC slash SOC SMG, which went back to SOC after they got done with SMG. And SMG was Security Management Group. Um, so they went through a slight transition there for two or three years, something like that, where they were known as SOC SMG. So prior to SOC SMG and after SOC SMG, they went back to SOC. Uh, so they, again, it depended on the contract because they had multiple contracts like a lot of, like a lot of companies did then. Uh, but primarily, like at least for me, uh, yeah, my my instruction and training was both stateside and then in country. So the core uh, requirement, the stuff you had to do to prove that you could, uh, in addition to all the mental and observational things they did to make sure that you were cut out for it, you know. So we we did all the courses of fire with the various weapon platforms, PT tests, and all that stuff. Then you get in country. And again, depending on, because sometimes you start out on one project and then for various reasons, they put you on another project, either because they like you and you're doing a good job and here's your next step 
in your evolution, or they don't think so highly of you, and so we're going to put you over here. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, so a lot of it was dependent upon the contract requirements as to whether you got additional instruction and training in country, as well as your uh, site or camp manager. Uh, what kind of clout, influence, and pull did he or she have? Uh, so that you know that that had a lot to do with it as well. Uh, then you got companies like EODT again. Uh, yes, there they had their training and instruction. Again, it, it depended on the contract and where you were going. Uh, but for me, anyway, yeah, we had instruction and training stateside, and then again, depending on the project, who was in charge there on the ground. Uh, your country management, stuff like that, you could get additional training and instruction while you were in country. And so, yeah, we got both again. Um, you know, and again, a lot of that had to do with the camp site manager, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, you know, the, it was, you know, essentially the same sort of thing. You, you know, stateside uh, was was really the one that, that really was was usually the most difficult because they were trying to weed out people that didn't belong there that for or for whatever reason they had changed their mind or their hearts and minds just weren't into it even if they were quite capable um <clears throat> so you know there uh, you know so each company's instruction and training programs would vary in terms of duration one thing or another depending on what contract you were going to be on what project they were going to put you in what sort of requirements they had so uh eodts for example as i recollect uh the one i went through i want to say it was two weeks it might have only been a week i i, I don't recall now it was a week or two it was the crucible uh as i recall that was in tennessee and uh so really good stuff <clears throat> a lot of uh instruction and training that uh not only for firearms but the PT, <laughs> I swear, that was that and one I'll get to here in a little bit. That one and a half mile run seemed more like a three mile run. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, so yeah, stateside and in country <clears throat> instruction training with those guys. Um, and some of it was a lot of fun in country. Uh, then you got companies like Torres, AES, uh, with Torres. And then I was part, then they had the Torres AES at the time. They probably had other divisions. AES, I believe, as I recall, was Advanced Enterprise Services or something like that. Um, so did I have firearms or PT instruction or training stateside? No. In-country? No. Uh, and probably just because the project, that was almost all of the com companies, not all of them, but this one certainly <coughs> relied almost primarily on your resume, your bio, um, your certifications, recommendations, and referrals. And, and there's a lot of companies, smaller, lesser-known companies, some I came to know, that um, that's all they do. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, your resume, your bio, and certs are all, are all good, but recommendations and referrals. I mean, I, I, I met guys later that were, you know, we, you, through various means, you, you meet them and you're talking. They say, yeah, we only hire uh, through recommendations and referrals. Nobody, I mean, you can apply all day long, but nobody gets hired if you're not recommended and referred by somebody that's already working for the company. Um, and, there, and there were a lot of companies that actually did something similar to it. Um, so uh, Torres AES, like, again, like I said, that was one of the very few companies um, that had no in-country or stateside 
prerequisite for firearms kind of stuff or PT. Um, actually, I take that back. They did have the PT, but because of the, I don't recall the exact specifics behind it, <clears throat> but I was able to go to a CrossFit um, uh, a gym, uh, one, one city, probably a 25-minute drive from me, maybe 30 from A to B, uh, and got... And I and I did. I don't recall what exactly, but I you know I had to do a ver- variety of things: pull ups and push ups and sit ups, and, and a run, a timed run. And as long as this was a verified, legitimate CrossFit place, and this person signed off that yep, he did this, he did this many, and he did it in this time. Um, as long as I fell within the parameters of those requirements, they signed off on, it, and they did. So, um, you know, and then you got other companies like, for example, Aegis, uh, which is a, a, a European uh, company. Um, and for this particular project, Aegis North America or Aegis LLC North America, uh, because they were, uh, they, they had gotten their WPS uh, um, task order. So they were part of the WPS program. But, uh, yeah, so for those guys, uh, it was resume, bio certifications, um, recommendations, and referrals. And that took a while. (laughs) And I think most people who've been on the WPS program uh, know what I'm talking about. It it can take a while. But in addition to getting your clearance with the State Department, it's way – getting the standard secret clearance with the State Department, at least at that time, I don't know about now, uh, was – almost as time-consuming or as time-consuming as getting, say, a top secret with the DOD. Uh, Many guys told me that the secret with with DOS is equivalent to the top secret with DOD. Uh, Then you got companies, uh, I think it was like the last company I worked for, Blue Hackle, uh, which was also one of the companies I worked the longest with. Um, But they, as I recollect, Blue Hackle, did not have any in-country or country-specific spe- uh, requirements in terms of you have to do this uh, through our certified instructors and whatever before. Uh, that was, again, resume, bio, certs, recommendations, and referrals. Uh, so, so the, again, it just depends on the company you're working for, what the contract requirements are from the source or the ultimate um, uh, source that they're that they've contracted with, and that is, and they're going to look at things like where you're going to be working, what's the climate over there. Um, you know, I mean, everybody wants professionals, and everybody. I mean, <laughs> I'm fond of saying I don't say it as much anymore because I get tired of saying it. It's kind of like diary of the mouth. But I, I swear to God, people, I have yet to meet anyone in the security industry that did not consider and did not call themselves a professional, okay? <laughs> so uh, just, you know what I'm talking about. So, <clears throat> all right, everybody's a professional. Let's find out <laughs> just how professional you are, okay? Looking and walking and talking the part is just one aspect, and most people can do that, okay? Uh, but for some people, maybe arguably a lot of them, that's all they can do, okay? And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. So that's what a lot of this stuff is for. Uh, so the guy, that, the guy or the gal that's talking the talk, great. Now let's see you walk it. And if you walk it, 
Cool. All right. Tone it down a little bit now. Okay. We're all in the same boat. We're all going to be living and working together. We don't need to hear your, your, your garbage every day. Okay. Quit selling me your resume every day. And I'm sure you, some of you that are listening have been on the same, had the same experiences where I, I've mentioned this before. It's like almost every day, at least here in the States, overseas, it wasn't so bad. I mean, a, again, there were projects and contracts where, where it happened. But here in the States, I swear to God, every project I'm on, every project, everybody's a professional. And, it, and they're selling their resume every time. And it's the same boring story every day. It's like, didn't you folks just tell me this yesterday and the day before that and the day before that? Ad infinitum, ad nauseum, all right? <laughs> so, uh Anyway, uh, you know, actions speak louder than words. Uh, you know, less is more. Yada, yada, yada. You know where I'm going with this. So, in addition to the long transatlantic flights, at least for me they were, because I'm in Washington State, Pacific Northwest, you know, right up next to Canada. Uh, Oregon's below us. Idaho is to the east of us. So, for me, it was a long transatlantic flight every time. So, we're talking... If I had no delays anywhere along the route, it was almost 24 hours from the time, well, from the time I left the airport to the time I got to my final destination. Now, transit time from home to the time I get to where I'm supposed to check in, it could be 36 to 48 hours if there were no delays. So, you know, you got those, you got the delays and the layovers at, at other airports and other countries and other hotels. Sometimes it's only six or eight hours, but they put you up at a nice hotel. Other times it's, you know, a day or two or three, sometimes longer. Uh, just sit back and enjoy, relax and enjoy it. Um, and I think probably uh, there were a number of enjoyable times. I've tried, you know, you learn fairly quickly um for a lot of reasons and it's not just during your downtime and your travel time but you learn to just relax enjoy it take it in it's all part of the journey man okay but that said i think to this day perhaps one of the uh one of the better i i won't call it the best because uh but certainly one of the better memorable times um and i i don't want to give it away because it, it might still be used but it's a hotel in effect um uh, it, it's like somebody's you know some prince had had decided to let his uh minor mansion be used as e the equivalent of a safe house if you will um but it was we were in transit from uh i believe it was Iraq on our way to Afghanistan and there were, we were doing visa processing and a lot of other stuff and rather than put us up in a hotel I mean they did it was a really nice place it was like I mean really it, it, once you got in there it was like some prince had donated his house to the cause really nice uh really nice big pool hot tub sauna billiards room gym uh you know nice lobby they you know with a nice long uh wide spiral staircase a really nice place met some interesting folks and had some interesting conversations uh so i'm you know just when you're when your private security contractors are coming and going if you've done it you know what i'm saying you just sit back relax and enjoy the ride because you're going to have plenty of time to not relax 
you're going to have plenty of time to not get the sleep that you need or want doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. Um, and people ask, well, what about instruction and training uh, before and after? You know, in other words, your downtime, when you come home, when you rotate out. Uh, well, you know, yeah, you should. And a lot of guys and gals did. Maybe most did. I don't think all did. But, yeah, I certainly did my share of it. And it was always on my dime. Uh, you know, there were some companies where we did get instruction and training, you know, pr what we called um, uh, pre-deployment instruction and training that was usually on the company dime. Uh, but during my downtime when I was home, uh, between rotations, yeah, plenty of instruction and training, uh, always on the private side. Sometimes I traveled out of state, went to other states for it uh, through other companies. Other times, uh, perhaps the majority of the time, actually the majority of the time was here in this state, in various locations. Uh, one of my favorites was up, I uh, forget, the, it was like the Sportsman's Club or something like that, up in this town of Linden, south of Blaine, north of Bellingham. Uh, it was uh, through a then good friend of mine who did, who did, who uh, the instruction and training every time got more complex, uh, more complete, more fulfilling, and sometimes like, wow, <laughs> I mean, it was pretty, pretty amazing. But you need that uh, so that you feel confident and comfortable going into the environment you're going to be in because you never know for sure, what you're going to come up against or what you're going to go against or what may or may not happen. And you want to make sure that you're ready for it. And so, and anybody that, that, that's been in it, in the military, that's been in these environments, whether it's in the military or in a private sector or both, knows what I'm saying. And it's true that, that you can almost never get enough instruction. You can almost never get enough training. Okay. And that's what you want to do. I mean, aside from keeping the rust and the dust from building up, you know, you want to enhance or develop new stuff because you never know when it'll come in handy or when it'll serve you, whether it's because the GPS no longer works, because the device literally is broken or you've lost your connection, uh, you know, so whether it's navigating, um, you know, in the city or out in the desert, <clears throat> whatever the case may be, it might be. Just that, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you need to uh, lock and cock, um, you know, so and you just need to know that you feel confident and comfortable that you know what you're doing and the guys around you know what they're doing. Uh, because the last thing you want to do is get between uh, the guy that's doing the aiming and the and the object he's aiming at. Right. <laughs> I mean, for a lot of reasons, you don't want to be that guy. Um, and you've heard that refrain, don't be that guy. So the instruction and the training, I mean, outside of, um, you know, some of the curriculum that some of these companies would run you through. So if you're doing it on your own dime, uh, some of this stuff could be pretty pricey. Uh, some of it's not quite as expensive, but you know, whether it's a bodyguard, bodyguards course or an EP course or a PSD course um, or it's an advanced first life course, uh, whether it's combat life saver or tri T, uh, triple T, uh, you know, uh, uh, triple TC, uh, it, you know, it just whatever it is, you're 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 out there, you know, carbine instruction and training pistol instruction and training, shotgun instruction and training, um, and with various platforms, because you never know for sure when yours might break, malfunction, 
can't be used, and the only thing that's left is that rusty AK that's laying on the ground that someone dropped, okay, um, or that shotgun. It may not be that brand new Benelli, okay. It might be that hunter's uh, shotgun that's been in the family for three or four generations. Uh, whatever, you know, those sorts of things don't typically happen to the private security contractors, but it can and it does happen. And again, though some would argue that those sorts of skills uh, are most required and or needed on some of the what we would call the uh, the the, the spook programs, if you will, for lack of a better term. You know, when you're working for those um, invisible alphabet agencies, uh, whether it's whether everybody knows about it or nobody knows about it. I mean, somebody always knows about it. Um, so, you know, again, those require even higher levels of instruction and training and experience. So, you know, there's just some projects and some some contracts that you're not going to be a part of. You, you just don't qualify for it. Even if you can do all that high-speed stuff, you just don't have the background for it. Um, or nobody or not enough people are, are willing to recommend or refer you for it. Uh, it just happens. So, you know, the stuff that you maybe see through various media apparatus where the stereotype is, you know, he's out there with his unbloused trousers wearing uh, some... Uh, Gucci type uh, footwear and Gucci eyewear and and he's got you know big long facial hair yada yada yeah I mean some of us have been on those kinds of projects or contracts and again you know depending on where you're at the environment the climate and I mean literally the climate in this case uh, you know a lot of that dictate you know and of course the client too yeah you know some clients are fine with it some companies are fine with it others aren't uh, there was only one contract where I where I really <clears throat> had to keep my face more or less shaved most of the time, and that was the first contract. After that, everything changed. Uh, you know, once you got out in the wild, you get to Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they pretty much play by big boy rules. You hear that a lot in in Kuwait. The starter contract is like, no, nah, these are not big boy rules. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and if you've been on them, you know, you know what I'm saying is true. And people ask, well, okay, that's cool, but what about, you know, you see these pictures, whether it's in the movies or videos or whatever, he or she's wearing blue jeans and, you know, some colorful tie-dye t-shirt. Well, you know, you probably not be wearing a colorful tie-dye t-shirt, but yeah, I mean, there are projects, there are contracts where blue jeans and a t-shirt are fine. Um, so, you know, again, it just depends on locale, client the people managing the contract for the company and, you know, what is or isn't needed or required. Um, it, it, it seems to me that, generally speaking, the closer you are to the flagpole and the closer to our starter contract you are, the more heavily regulated it is. And to some extent, it kind of makes a lot of sense because, let's face it, a lot of people that get on these starter contracts need a lot of hand-holding. Uh, they need a lot of uh, outside um, correction. <laughs> okay, that we'll, we'll just leave it at that. You know, can you carry your weapons with you when you're not working? Well, again, it depends on where you're working, uh, who you're working for, both the client and the company. It depends on your job, uh, your job description, your job duty. Uh, so, you know, there are variables. Uh, not every private security contract outside the continental U.S. allows you to have weapons when you're not 
on duty or when you leave the base or what what have you when you're out on the economy again um you know it's kind of like um i remember a time and some of you might recollect this and, and know this to be true but there was a time both in the marine corps and the army and i don't know about the other branches um i hear that's not so much the case uh with the navy but uh there was a time at least in the marine corps and in the army where for example if you were chasing down your dream of being a green beret uh aside from all the other stuff you had to go through where you had to do your airborne first then you had to be a ranger yada yada and you had to go through all this stuff but that the average age of the green beret at that time i uh, back in the 80s and it changed i think at some point between the late 80s and the early 90s i think certainly by the early to mid 90s is uh but the average age was 35 the average age of the green beret the guy or the gal that just got the green beret was 35 years of age and and you, and as I recall, you had to be at least a sergeant, if not a staff sergeant, to even be considered. Something similar in the Marine Corps back then. Uh, you could start being considered by the time you were a corporal, but you really didn't get your shot until you were a sergeant. Uh, I mean, there were exceptions and there were waivers made. But the reason for that was the maturity factor. And you've heard me talk about this before. And the same thing applies to private security contracts. Why they, you know, require this and they look for this and they're looking for that. It, it, it's the maturity thing, the experience thing. So experience and maturity, because it's not just about you. It's about the guys and the gals around you and not just in your unit or your group. It's everybody you come in contact with and interface with, you know, so, you you know, they got to make sure that you're not going to say and do stupid stuff because let's face it, stupid shit gets people hurt every time. So regardless, you know, young guy, old guy, whatever, um, you're going to mature pretty quick if you stick with the program okay so if you are able to stick with the program and get all the way through it chances are if you weren't already matured you are now <laughs> okay you're going to mature pretty quick uh you have to that's just you know so maturity life experience whatever you want to call it. and sometimes life experience can can sometimes mitigate some of the things that maybe you're a little short on if you can articulate it properly again it just depends on the project and the contract and where you're going and what you're going to be doing when you get there so you know there's a lot of people and we hear and read stuff about you know all these people that want to volunteer and go to ukraine just like they wanted to go to U syria before that um why you got all these starry-eyed wannabes that want to do this and that when a lot to most just it's like <laughs> you know you've been an online gaming ninja all your life what are you talking about <laughs> okay or yeah okay so you did this way back then you did that way back then and a common refrain i heard a lot was great what have you done lately what have you done for me lately you know so putting that into proper context uh, and as it applied specifically to me is I did have a lot of life experience before I got on my first contract and I had been in the military and I'd had my share of instruction and training and I had you know a little bit here and there you know but for the most part I was I was a family man so I had to reprove myself to the company to the government and to myself and once I realized that I was serious about it and I and I demonstrated that I was serious about it okay then it was on me to keep it going to keep keep marching on stay focused 
keep the long term and not worry about all this little stuff that's going on around me. It doesn't matter. Yeah, sometimes we all get embroiled in it, but it doesn't matter. So in the end, being a private security contractor in a hostile or war-torn area uh, takes a lot of things. I mean, it just takes a lot of things. And I think what you what anybody that's considering it needs to really, really think long and hard about that hasn't been in those areas, either because you were born or raised there and you can't get away from it, or you haven't been there, you've never been in that kind of an environment, is to ask yourself, seriously ask yourself, what would it really be like to be immersed in that environment morning, day, and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next three months or the next three years or 10 years, okay? Just think about it because you don't have that constant support system. You can't just get up and walk to the bathroom and get a cup of coffee when you wake up. You can't just pour that bowl of cereal. You don't look out. The grass, the green grass isn't there. Your dog isn't barking, you know, trying to get your attention. Your wife or your husband isn't there. Your children aren't there. You can't just go to Starbucks. You're not going to just jump in your car and drive to your nice cozy office, okay? Things are way different, and sometimes you can't even drive to where you want to get. So there's an awful lot to consider, to take into consideration if you're considering uh, being a private security contractor. So the next time you see or read an advertisement looking for mercenaries or contractors to go overseas, to go to this place, and you get all these starry-eyed, glamorous stuff going on in your mind, and you say, well, Kyle Rittenhouse did it. Well, <laughs> back up a little bit there, Buck. Uh, bucko. Uh, so just keep that stuff in mind uh, because you got to keep in mind you might be doing way more harm to other people even if you don't harm yourself necessarily you could be bringing a lot of harm to a lot of other folks so with that said <clears throat> putting a wrap on it what's it like being a private security contractor outside your home country well it's a lot of things and it takes not everybody can do it in fact most can't if you look at the percentages and the numbers and somebody out there has it of the people that have actually done it successfully it's actually a fairly small number probably not much different than the numbers or the percentages that we see uh successfully navigating the military career so Putting a uh, wrap on this one, uh, giving everybody a break. <laughs> uh, thank you all, everyone, for taking your time out of your day or your evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting, my experiences as a private security contractor overseas. Thank you again to Kava Cohen and Colin Perry, or Colin Perry, and to Andres Rodriguez. Thank you to my wife, my children, and all the folks, male and female, who have been and or are still a part of my life. Remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real.